Revelation chapter 3. The Lord Jesus is the great physician of the church. It is not the responsibility of any doctor to tell you that he wants to make you happy. It is his responsibility to tell you that he's trying to make you healthy. It is the responsibility of a doctor to look at you and to examine you and to determine from the symptoms and from all the tests what is wrong with you and what possible steps can be taken to make you healthy. You do not want to go to a doctor who knows that there's bad news about you but won't tell you because he doesn't want to hurt your feelings. Jesus Christ comes to his church. He speaks to seven churches. We are at the last one, the church at Laodicea. And he writes to them about the diseases that have struck these churches, the things that are keeping them from being all that God had desired them to be. They had once started out as healthy, vibrant, growing churches, and now they are sick. And Jesus comes and says things like, I will remove, I will fight, I will kill, I will come as a thief. These are the alternatives that he gives to the church from taking his prescription. And his prescription is repentance. He tells the church that the church is to repent. The last words of Jesus Christ to the church is not the Great Commission. It is not to go into Jerusalem and pray until the Holy Spirit comes. The last words of Jesus to the church are found right here, to repent. And he gives us the alternatives to repentance. We're at the last church. It's the church at Laodicea. And if you found Revelation chapter 3, would you stand please as I read beginning with verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." You may be seated. Jesus has written to these churches, and if you'll just kind of walk through them very quickly with me as I give us a little bit of a review. He has said to the church at Ephesus that there is a danger of diminishing love. They had left their first love. They were sound in doctrine, but they had left their first love. To the church at Smyrna, he talks about the danger of fearing suffering. The danger of fearing suffering. Here was a faithful church, they were facing intense pressure. And when pressure and persecution comes, it is often our characteristic that we back away for fear that we will suffer for standing for the cause of Christ. To the church at Pergamos, there was the danger of doctrinal compromise. They were tolerating heresy. 
in the church at Pergamos. To the church at Thyatira, there was the danger of moral compromise. They were allowing for the sin of Jezebel. They were becoming guilty of spiritual adultery. Then for the church at Sardis, there was the danger of spiritual deadness. Sardis was a morgue with a steeple on top. Sardis was a church that was dead. They were dead in their devotion to God. And, and Christ came to them and warns them, says, I will come as a thief and you will not know the hour. Then to the church at Philadelphia, the church we looked at last week, there was the danger of failing to walk through the open door. God had provided an open door with unlimited potential for them. And the danger for the church at Philadelphia was not doctrinal or moral. It was the danger of failing to take advantage of opportunities that God would give them. And now we come to Laodicea and we see the danger of indifference or apathy or self-sufficiency. Here is Jesus Christ, the divine disturber, standing at the door of the church and knocking. Now we often use this verse, Revelation 3.20, to refer to lost people. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, I'll come in and sup with you. We use that to refer to lost people. But if you remember, Jesus is writing the church. And Jesus is pictured in the beginning of Revelation chapter 2 and in Revelation 1 as walking among the lampstands. You'll remember that the lampstands are the churches. Jesus is in the midst of his church, walking among his church. And now in Revelation chapter 3, as we come to the last church, the Laodicean church, the church that made God sick, Jesus is not walking among the church. He is outside the church trying to get in. He's knocking on the door. The divine disturber will not let the church sit in its easy chair and with its feet propped up. He is knocking, banging at the door. And we have on many churches in our land today a do not disturb sign on the door. Churches do not want to be disturbed. I was sharing with one of our staff members just before this service. I'm afraid of what the Lord might have to do to disturb the church in America enough that she repents. There's a need for repentance, and the divine disturber comes to this church in the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was a city that was west of Colossae. It was a center of a trade route. It was a wealthy and a very influential city. It had a great stadium and a great theater. It had an underground hot water system that heated the homes in winter. People had pipes running, and the steam heat from this underground system would heat the homes in the winter, and it provided great spas for the people to go and relax in. Now, the characteristic of the water in those spas was that it was bitter and that it was lukewarm. It was lukewarm water that ran into those spas, and it was just the right temperature. They didn't have to do anything to it. They could just allow it to flow into those spas as the people relaxed there. But it was so bitter that if you drank it and consumed it in quantity, it would make you nauseous. Here's Jesus writing to a church, and he says that this church makes him nauseous, makes him want to vomit. There's no way that the church in Laodicea could have misunderstood what Jesus was trying to say to them, for he took a very pertinent example right in their midst and used it to illustrate how he felt about them. It was a very wealthy city. In fact, at the time of a great earthquake, Rome came to the, city of Ephesus, to the city of Laodicea and said, we'll help you to rebuild your city after the earthquake. And they said, no thanks, we don't need your money. We'll rebuild it ourselves. That's why you see verse 17 in there. It says, I am rich and have need of nothing. This was a wealthy city. It was a wealthy church. It was an influential church. It had a lot of money. They didn't need anything. It was a rich city. It was probably the original runaway for the rich and famous. Robin Leach probably had his ancestry in this church somewhere. 
you know, with all these $3,000 motel rooms and everything. It, it, just, it was just an incredibly wealthy city. And yet Jesus gives an honest evaluation of the church within that city, and he brings to them not one word of commendation. There are no words of praise for this church. There's no applause for this church. There's no, hey, you're doing a great job. There's no, boy, I'm so proud of you in this church. He brings a condemnation to this church, and he identifies himself as he does that in three ways. The correspondent to the church is Jesus Christ. You remember, John is merely writing what Jesus has told him to write. And he identifies himself, first of all, as the amen. That's one of the Old Testament titles for God. It is a, the word amen is a transliteration of a Hebrew word which means truth. He is the amen, the truth, the so be it, the final word, the final authority, the final statement for the church is Jesus Christ. Everything that a church does, ought to ask, we ought to ask ourselves the question, how does this relate to the person and work of Jesus Christ? What does Jesus say about this? How does this fit with his nature, with his person, with his sinless character? He is the final authority for the church. Now, I want you to notice how he identifies himself. He says, I'm the amen, I'm the last word. The word Laodicea means the rule or the will of the people. Do you see the contrast? Jesus said, my name is final. I am the final authority. And Laodicea means the rule and the will of the people. How many times have churches gotten in trouble because the people ruled instead of Jesus ruling? How many times have churches gotten in trouble because the pulpit ruled instead of Jesus ruling? The church is not a democracy. I remember a lady saying to Max Barnett one time, said, well, Mr. Barnett said, it's fine to talk about the church in Acts, but you've got to remember the church in Acts was founded before democracy. Well, the kingdom of God was founded before democracy too, and the word of God was written before democracy, so I'll go with what came first. I'll go with Jesus. The church is not a democracy. We don't vote on whether we're going to believe in the blood atonement. We don't vote on whether the Word of God is inerrant. That's what's gotten us in trouble in this country now. We think that our opinions can somehow override the Word of God. They can't. God never said that we had a choice. You see, the word Lord means boss. It actually could be translated dictator. We don't understand that in our society because we get to go to the polls every four years and vote for the most powerful man in the world. We get to vote for a man who can destroy the world with one phone call just by the launching of atomic weapons. We don't understand how when we can vote for a man who has absolute authority in this country to rule, how in the world Jesus can say, you don't have a choice on that. Folks, I would say to you, I was almost said I would submit to you, but that got taken care of Monday night. Uh, I would say to you that when you made the choice to follow Jesus, you lost all your other choices. And that you and I as believers are to bow before Jesus Christ and to submit to Jesus Christ as absolute sovereign and control. It is not the rule of the people. It is not the will of the people. The will of the church must be the will of God. Always always must be the will of God. And he says, I am the amen, the final word. Then he says, I'm the faithful and true witness. The true one has a faithful and true witness. What he says is faithful and true. These people were phonies. They were fakes. They had a facade. They had religion, but they didn't have any power. 
He says, I'm the faithful and true witness. And then he says he is the beginning of the creation of God, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, the Jehovah's Witness used this little phrase, the beginning of the creation of God, to defend the fact that they say that Jesus was created by God. Well, the next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, let me give you a little word study to do with them, okay? The Greek word beginning is R-K, and it transliterates in English A-R-C-H-E. And it means first in origin. First in origin or the first cause. Scripture says that all things were created by Him, John 1, 3. Colossians 1, 16, all things were created by and for Him. Jesus wasn't the first created thing. He created the first thing. Jesus Christ was not created by God. He was God manifested in His Son. There was never a point where Jesus began. He has always been. And anybody who tries to tell you that Jesus Christ was a created Son of God is a liar and is from the pit, and they have a false doctrine and they're trying to deceive you. Jesus Christ is the beginning of the creation of God. He has always been. He always will be. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry. That's what he said. He said, I'm the amen. And what I say about creation is what stands. So, we've got some folks out there that are going to have some problems with that, but they're going to find out one day that what he said he was, he actually was. And that's what he is. He's the creator. He's the beginning. He's the first and the last, and he's everything in between. Now, he brings a word to this church, which we don't really know who founded this church. All we know is that uh, Paul referred to it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, and Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul referred to this church in Laodicea, but we don't know much about it. We do know that they had lost all their values. They had lost their vision, and they had begun to be people who didn't have a commitment to the cause of Christ. And so Christ comes to them with a condemnation. In verses 15 through 17, there is a condemnation, and God's anger is against this church. And I want you to understand the anger of God because so many people misunderstand the anger of God. He speaks to them about being lukewarm in their heart. Scripture basically defines that man's heart can be one of three ways. It can be a burning heart. Luke chapter 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus said, Did not our hearts burn within us when he walked with us and explained the Scriptures to us? Folks, when you're walking with God and Jesus is taking the Word and in your time alone with God, he's explaining the Scriptures to you, your heart can't help but burn as he goes with you. Then he talks about the fact that there is a cold heart. Matthew chapter 24, verse 12 says, Because of lawlessness, most people's love will grow cold. A cold heart. There are a lot of folks that are coming to churches today, and they are worshiping now, or they're going to worship in later hours, or maybe they worshiped yesterday, and they're going to worship all around this globe, and they have cold hearts. They come and sit in cold, drab buildings, and they go through rituals and motions and repeat rites and go through all these little ceremonies and walk out, but their hearts are cold toward God. They are not stirred within themselves to do anything about what the salvation of Jesus Christ meant to do in their lives. They're cold-hearted. And then there are those with the lukewarm heart, and he refers to them here. Paul talked about those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. The lukewarm heart. Jesus said that the heart that made him the sickest was lukewarm. Not the hot, not the cold, but lukewarm. And God gets angry. He is sick about what this church is. Now let me give you, if I could, very quickly, some characteristics of God's anger. 
Because you'll find in your witnessing to somebody that somebody will say, well, I just couldn't follow a God who would wipe out whole nations. I couldn't follow a God who said that you had to wipe out whole tribes of people. I just don't see how you could say God is love. There must be two gods, and they try to get you in a corner and say, well, God was one thing in the Old Testament, and he changed his mind in the New Testament. No, folks, God is the same all the way throughout. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but he does have an angry side. Now, it's not anger like you and I have. I can get angry at my kids and it not be just and it not be righteous and it's certainly not holy. But God has a holy anger. Let me give you some of the characteristics. First of all, number one, it is justified. It is justified. Psalms chapter 62, verse 16, and Romans chapter 2, verse 6 says, God will recompense or pay back a man according to his deeds. God's anger is always justified. God always has a right when he's angry. He has a right and a reason for which he is angry. Secondly, it is always initiated by disobedience. When you read Hebrews and when you read Romans and you read uh, God's anger and wrath being poured out, you can understand that God's anger and wrath is always poured out because people have been disobedient to him. It is never, we never see the anger of God when God's people are obedient. It comes when we are disobedient. You can see that in the study of the nation of Israel. Thirdly, he is always slow to anger. God does not have a quick temper. I think I offended some folks in the early service because I told them what the Hebrew metaphor for this is. The Hebrew metaphor for this is, is that God is slow to snort. How many of you have ever seen a horse snort? Uh, Twelve people in this room have ever seen a horse snort. <laughs> None of you watched Roy Rogers on Sunday morning, did you? You never did. Trigger never snorted, you know. He says he's slow to snort. It means God's slow to, to, he's just slow to do that. God doesn't just quickly lose his anger. He is slow to do that. He is, it means he's, in fact, one Hebrew metaphor says God has a very, very, very long nose. It means it takes time for him. He doesn't do it quickly. He doesn't do it easily. God's anger is slow. If you don't believe that, Read the book of Jonah. Now, boy, you and I would have chalked Jonah up a long time before. But God is slow to anger. Number five, number four, God's anger does not last long. Look at Psalms chapter 30, verse 5. Psalms chapter 30, verse 5. God's anger does not last long. Psalms chapter 30, verse 5. And if you'll stay in the book of Psalms for a few moments, the next few verses that we'll look at are found here. Psalms chapter 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is but for a lifetime. Now, God, number five, God often restrains his anger. Turn over a few pages to uh, Psalms chapter 78. Psalms chapter 78. God often restrains his anger. Psalms chapter 78, verse 38. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger 
and did not arouse all his wrath. God often restrains his anger. Now, you know, sometimes you and I see things and we think, boy, now if I were God, and the reason we're not is because that's what we would do if I were God. You know, we think if I were God, I'd do this, or I'd get that person, or I'd, you know, I'd just wipe that guy off. But that's why God's anger is slow, and it doesn't last long, and sometimes he restrains his anger because he's God. He restrains it. He holds it back. Number six, repentance neutralizes his anger. Repentance neutralizes his anger. And then finally, in Jeremiah chapter uh, 23, Jeremiah chapter 23, God's anger remains... Number seven, God's anger remains until it accomplishes its purpose. God's anger remains until it accomplishes its purpose. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 20. 23, verse 20. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and carried out the purposes of His heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. God's anger does not last long. It is slow, but it will remain until it accomplishes its purpose. And repentance is the only thing that can neutralize it. I like what Stephen Bly said when he said, when everything else fails, God's anger gets the job done. Now, folks, God has loved this country, and God has blessed this country. But I am about to come to the conclusion that the only thing that's going to get the attention of this country is the anger of God. God has loved us. He has blessed us. He has kept the doors open for us. And we are soft-souled on a gospel that thinks that we can be at ease and lukewarm. And God is talking here about this lukewarmness, and that word lukewarm means tepid. It's fence-straddling. It's walking, trying to walk on both sides. I remember that when I went overseas and they gave me a glass of iced tea and it didn't have any ice in it. Now, why do they think God said it was iced tea? It doesn't have any ice, and you ask for ice overseas and they look at you funny. Now, they don't put ice in their drinks. They serve them at room temperature. You ask for tea or Coke, sometimes you get a Coke at, at room temperature. Boy, there's nothing more sickening than drinking something like that at room temperature. I don't care how thirsty you are. God says this church is lukewarm. G. Campbell Morgan said lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. You know what the opposite of love is? It's not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. You know why? Because some of you have been in marriages... Well, it would have been easier for you to take the fact that somebody had turned from loving you to hating you than to just that they didn't care anymore. The worst thing in the world is when somebody just doesn't care about you anymore. It's not that they hate you, they just don't care. You see, the, Jesus is writing to a church and says, I've got a church full of people that just don't care. Dr. Havner said the church of Jesus Christ is hurt more by Sunday morning bench warmers than by all the publicans and sinners combined. This church had God's anger. They were evangelical, but they were not evangelistic. They were disciples of the lowest common denominator. They wanted to do the least possible for the cause of Christ. They wanted a mild-mannered preacher preaching mild-mannered sermons to mild-mannered people so they could go out and be more committed to being mild-mannered. 
I mean, that's all they wanted. They just wanted to come to church and sit and soak and sour. They didn't want to become anything. They didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to make a difference in their society. They were just lukewarm. They were not diligent. They were not fervent in their spirit. They were just lukewarm people. Now notice in verse 17 they say, I am rich, wealthy, and don't need a thing. Now, would you look please at what Jesus says about them. They say, I am rich and wealthy and don't need a thing. Jesus says, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, here's a church that's strutting its stuff. I mean, they're talking about how great they are and how wonderful they are. And Jesus says, you are miserable and wretched and poor and blind and naked. That word wretched means they were pressed with a burden. You know what their burden was? They were wealthy. Their burden was they were wealthy. They were depending on their resources and their ability and their bank accounts and not on the resources of God. I'm familiar with a church in North Georgia that sits outside of Atlanta about 60 miles and they have over $250,000 in a savings account because the men on the trustees decided they need that in case there's ever another depression so if the hot water heater or the air conditioner goes out, they've got some money to fix it. See, you don't have to trust God if you've got money in the bank. You don't have to trust God if you figured out all the angles. One of the things that's happened to us in America is we've put ourselves in an economic position where we don't have to trust God anymore. We don't live by the sweat of our brow and the work of our hands anymore. We live by government handouts. So we don't need to trust God. And you can go to Germany and they don't have to trust God. The preachers don't have to trust God there because the state pays the preacher's salary. You don't have to trust God. And Jesus says to this church, you are trusting in your own resources, in your own economy, in your own plan. And he says, you are wretched. It's a burden that you've got. It's not a blessing. It's a burden. And then he says, you are miserable or pitiful. Jesus looks at this church and he says, they are pitiful and they are poor. That is the most extreme word for poverty. It is the word of a pauper. It is, it is one who's living in a cardboard box and it's 20 degrees below zero and they're sleeping right by a garbage dump and they're covered with lice. He says, you are the most wretched form of poverty. And yet these people were well-dressed, but he says to them, you are blind and naked. You don't see what your spiritual condition is. Now you've got to understand how much this word naked must have cut into the church at Laodicea. Because this was a clothing center. I mean, they had Saks and they had Bloomingdale's and they had Macy's and they had everything. These folks all wore designer clothes. I mean, you know, every lady thought she had the only dress like this. You know, this church was full of ladies who wore Bob Mackey's. And everybody had their own style of clothes. And if somebody else showed up with the same coat or the same suit or the same dress on, they got offended because these people were well-dressed people. They loved to walk around. It looked like a fashion show when these people came to church. I mean, they were well-dressed. They were the best-dressed church in the world. And Jesus said, I can look beyond the threads and see your heart. And you're naked. I wonder how differently we would act in church if God one day when we walked in, there was something at the back door and it would change us from all our cleaning up and all our fixing ourselves up and all our to-doing that we do over our physical appearance. I wonder if there was some kind of thing that would fall over us one day when we walked into church and it would show what the true condition of our heart was. I wonder if we would sit like we sit in churches these days. 
You see, it's easy to be well-dressed and to look good and to put on the facade and to come to church and to play the game until Jesus looks at you and says, you're naked. They were clothed in self-righteousness, but they had no clothing from God. And so God comes and gives them a command in verse 18 through 20, and He gives them five commands in verses 18 through 20. First of all, He says to them that they should exchange their poverty for pure gold. They should exchange their poverty for pure gold. They needed to buy something that money couldn't buy. They needed to buy into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They needed the righteousness and the purity of Jesus Christ. They needed to exchange all that they thought made them wealthy and put on all that they thought they didn't need. Their poverty for pure gold. Secondly, they needed to exchange their nakedness for white garments. They needed to exchange their nakedness for white garments. These people were dressed in their self-righteousness, and Jesus says, put on the white garments. These are symbols of the righteous deeds of the saints. These are garments of purity. These are garments of one that is unstained. And Jesus says, take off your nakedness and put on white garments. Thirdly, he says they were to exchange their blindness for healing eye salve. Their blindness for healing eye salve. Now, around those pipes in Laodicea, the calcium built up, and they would chip that calcium away from the pipes, and they would crush it into a fine powder, and they would turn that powder into an eye salve to use it in healing process. And Jesus said, you need to get some of the real eye salve from heaven because you're coming to church, but you don't see how you really are. You don't see how you really are. And then they need to exchange, fourthly, their lukewarmness for hot zeal. Their lukewarmness for hot zeal. Alexander McLaren says, A numbed limb feels no pain. As cold increases, the sensation of cold and everything else goes away. Those who need most to go to the mourner's bench usually watch others go. I am troubled by those who can weather any meeting and sit through countless invitations unconscious of God's evaluation of them. They needed to exchange lukewarmness for hot zeal. And finally, they needed to exchange compromising disobedience for true repentance. They needed to exchange compromising disobedience for true repentance. Now notice he says then, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And anyone opens the door, I will come in and dine with them. Christ is standing, continuous action, knocking, continuous action. And he says, If you'll just open the door, I'll come in and I'll dine with you. That's an interesting reference. For he is referring to the last meal of the day. He was referring to a time of relaxation when there's no more scheduled, there are no phone calls to return. There's nothing that you've got to worry about. You can just sit down and eat and visit and fellowship with one another. No need to rush off to another meeting. No need to get back and punch the clock. This is the relaxing meal of the day when all other activities are behind you and you can just sit down and rest and enjoy. What Jesus says is, is for those who will open the door and let him come in, and become hot-hearted toward the Lord, that the supper room also becomes the throne room. That in the supper room, around fellowship with the Lord Jesus and around the Word, also comes the room where He takes control and He takes over. And we enter into a relationship with Him unlike any other relationship. And when we get in that kind of relationship with the Lord, we don't want to rush off. We don't want to hurry away. We don't want to move out quickly because we understand that our relationship with Him is the most precious thing that we've got. Now he gives them a counsel in verses 21 and 22. In verse 21, he tells them that they are to reign with Christ. He talks about that he will give them a throne. Those who overcome, 
He'll give them a throne, just like he overcame and God gave him a throne. And then in verse 22, he says that they are to respond to Christ, to reign with Christ and to respond to Christ. History affords little ground for optimism for an organization that has departed from Christ that it will ever in any way return. Folks, there are denominations today that you can name. And the chances of them returning to the fervency of their early days is very slim. Very slim. The chances of a group of people, a church or a denomination, ever going back to its hot-heartedness, ever going back to its first love, are very slim if you just study it from a historical basis. And the only way that can happen is if the church repents. Jesus never called casual disciples. Jesus never called people and compromised the rules to get them to follow. Jesus never called people and said, hey, I'll water it down until it becomes acceptable to you. If the rich young ruler came and tried to join our church today, we would welcome him with open arms and raise the budget Wednesday night. Hallelujah. Praise God. The rich young ruler is here. Jesus said that he did all the commandments but one. The rich young ruler turned away and left sadly. Now, if you had been Jesus or I'd been Jesus, we'd have chased him down that road and said, wait a minute, son. Let's kind of get this. You know, you give a little, I'll give a little, and we'll meet in the middle, and you come on and join. You see, the problem with the church in America today is we're interested in joiners. God is interested in disciples. We want folks to just come and join. God wants people to come and give their allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. You see, with Jesus, there was no room for casual disciples. You read the Gospels and it says over and over again that many left him and followed him no more. Many left him that day. Why? Because Jesus was a mean guy? No, Jesus was full of love. Why? Because Jesus said, these are the demands of discipleship. This is what it will cost you to follow me. And if you're not willing to pay that price, you don't need to even get on the road. It was no caravan. It was no carnival. It was no circus atmosphere with Jesus. It was all or nothing. That's what it was when he walked the face of this earth for three years of public ministry. That's what it is today. I got disturbed last night. I've just about made a commitment that I'm not going to watch television anymore especially religious television. I'm, I'm a just, I told my wife, I'm just about at the opinion that religious television does more damage than MTV because at least you know where the evil is on MTV. I had a man come up and share with me one time that he was praying for the day when all religious television would be off television because he said, we cannot make up for 165 hours of heresy with three hours of good Bible teaching. Last night, God has chosen you to tune in and listen to me. It is God's plan for you to listen and to respond. You will be joining the one church that is changing the world. There is power through one church, one God, one globe, one Christ, one Bible, and one person, you. That is a direct quote from Robert Schuller. He said... When somebody comes up and asks you to what church do you belong, you can say, I belong to the Crystal Cathedral, Garden Grove, California, and here's how you join. You join by, first of all, committing to pray for us. Well, doesn't that sound spiritual? 
Then secondly, you join by giving financial support. Quote, we don't ask for a large gift at first, end of quote. You can begin with $25 a month. Now folks, that is heresy. And that makes the Lord Jesus Christ sick at his stomach. Because I'm going to tell you something. You don't join the church by praying and by giving $25 a month. You join the church through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how you join a church. And you can't buy your way into the kingdom of heaven at $25 a month or $250,000 a month. You can't buy your way into the kingdom of heaven. It comes one way. And that is through the blood atonement of Jesus Christ and you recognizing that you're a sinner and you recognize that you need redemption and you recognize that the only way for you to be redeemed is by the very blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can do it. Redemption and repentance, that's the only way it's going to come. Folks, I am concerned for what God will have to do to America to get this kind of garbage out of America. Because I'm going to tell you, it is a tragedy that people will be sucked into that and think that for $25 a month they can give to somebody who will never once talk about the blood of Jesus. You say, well, you don't know that. Well, let me just give you a personal illustration. Cynthia Clawson is a friend of my wife and I. She sang at the Crystal Cathedral about five years ago. When she got ready to sing, she said, they said, now you understand that you are singing on our television program and we don't want you to sing about the blood because the blood is offensive to people in America. So you know what Cynthia's saying? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now friends, I'm going to tell you something. You take lordship out, you take the blood out, you take repentance out, and you've got a lukewarm church that anybody can join and everybody will go to hell in. If you want to join this church this morning, you can't join it by bringing a check. You can't join it by bringing a letter from somebody else. The only way you can join it is by giving testimony to the fact that you've repented of your sins and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and you want to follow Him and obey Him and be exactly what He tells you to be. If you want to join the church that way, the doors are wide open. If you want to join any other way, they're closed. There's only one way to join the church of Jesus Christ. It's not to come and say, I'm joining a denomination. It's not to come and say, I'm joining an organization. It's come to say, I'm joining Him. And I acknowledge that He is the only way, He is the only truth, and He is the only life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Him. That's the only way you're going to get in. If you can get in any other church any other way, I would encourage you, don't do it, because you'll get in a church and you'll miss heaven. And there are too many people who are in the church and are going to miss heaven now. The only way you can get into Jesus' church is through Jesus, not through money, not through any other method. And you're invited to stand right now. We're going to pray, and then you're going to have an opportunity to respond. Brother Ron is going to lead us, and I'm going to ask us with our heads bowed in just a moment after I pray that with our heads bowed, we begin to sing that familiar chorus, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Would you let him fall fresh on you today? Maybe today you are lukewarm. You've been coming to church and you've been going through the motions and you look around and you see other people excited about the Lord, but you're just not there. Would you come and allow the Lord to restore you and to renew you and to restore your fellowship and your joy of your salvation? 
Would you move out of those pews and down these aisles and take the hands of one of these ministers or one of our deacons and let them share with you how you can get back on the right track with the Lord? Would you come down and, and be a part of this church by your acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Would you do that? We don't need joiners this morning. We need folks who are going to be committed enough to say, I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing at Sherwood Baptist Church. And I want to come and I want to give my life to the Lord Jesus Christ and serving Him through His church. After I pray, you'll have an opportunity to respond. You'll join Ron as he sings. But if you cannot say that your heart is, is hot toward the Lord, if it's lukewarm, I want to encourage you to come down this morning and make a decision. Heavenly Father, we give this invitation to you. Holy Spirit, have freedom to reign and to rule and to move up and down each row and to touch each heart. Father, if there are any here who feel that they are rich and have need of nothing, would you touch their hearts and remind them that apart from the righteousness of Christ, that they are poor and wretched and blind and naked. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us so that we can respond as you desire us to respond. For I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You come right now. Praise for Him alone. 